Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode is a fireside chat between Michael Moe, founder of GSV, and Chris Hohn Serik, chairman of the Shorelight Board of Directors, co-founder of Sterling Partners, and co-chair of the Investment Committee. Uh, it's not an overstatement to say that I can't think of anybody or over the last 30 years who's uh, had a bigger footprint in the education space than Chris and his partners at Sterling. Uh, they were the owners operators of Sylvan Learning for many years, Laureate, which had a million students internationally, the, the Prometric, which was the leader in remote testing, Connections Academy, which was an early pioneer uh, in the digital learning space, the homeschool space, and on and on and on. So it's really um, my privilege to have the, 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 the opportunity to, to, to spend time with Chris this morning, get caught up where things are at and where he's going next. But before I do that, so Chris, let me um, ask you, you know, so Sterling is now 37 years old, which is pretty remarkable, particularly since you're not that you're not that old. So how did Sterling get going? How did you meet Doug Becker, your kind of partner in crime? And I know there was two other founders, Doug's brother, Eric and, and Steve, but how did this all get going? And where did you originally meet Doug? Yeah, so for, first, Michael, it's, it's, it's great to see you, and I'm, I'm glad everybody is sort of uh, healthy and, uh, and we can remain somehow engaged, even if we're all uh, sort of, uh, you know, I think rooted in place in, in so many ways uh, during this time. But, um, you know, uh, to your point, it's been, uh, it's been a long process, and uh, uh, we got, frankly, we got started at a time when the world was, in many respects, a simpler place, and particularly education. I was in college, and Doug was just starting, and we actually, uh, you know, met each other during a summer job, and basically uh, wanted to uh, start a, these were early days of technology, so uh, at that point, this was, uh, er, this was 83, uh, end of 83, when we sort of got started on things, um, you could, uh, you know, the world was a small and simple place relative to where it is today. You get businesses going and, you know, the tech companies were frankly junior league at that point. And you could, uh, you know, Bill Gates would show up at a sales meeting and talk to people. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a different world back then. But suffice to say, we started actually by uh, thinking about at that point, uh, what we felt was a potential to be disruptive in the healthcare market and started a company that was involved in, um, early electronic claims processing using PCs, which sounds very quaint now, but at the time when everyone was doing things uh, with mainframes and tapes and whatnot, the idea that you could um, integrate providers, store medical records, and do electronic claims processing was, uh, was at that point in time, was, was sort of a new concept. So we ended up starting a, a business back then, an early sort of tech business. 
So talk about Starlane a little bit, just in, I want to talk about a lot of things. We're going to be limited on time. So I want to kind of shoot through a bunch of things, but it's interesting because Sterling's um, unusual that you guys are both, you know, you're entrepreneurs, you start businesses, you operate business, but you're also investors. How does that experience as an entrepreneur and operator help you invest? And how's your experience as an investor give you a lens to businesses you may want to start and how you operate them? You know, I think the I think the things that it, it, it clearly the chance to have been in the seat and saying what does it take to start a business, the importance of understanding uh, the reliance on you know great talent, interesting markets, and trying to look around the corner to the next things that are happening. That sort of balance of experience and sort of the idea of compounding knowledge, more than necessarily just been in the operating seat, but have frankly the passage of time and the chance to see cycles and compound your knowledge in a space has been the things that's been most interesting for us because as you know a lot of this is a combination of pattern recognition the ability to sort of see around the next corner about where things are going interpret pace because a lot of things and education is is clearly one of those places where pacing is maybe one of the biggest challenges we have because we can see where the future might be the question is, when will it get there? And education has been, frankly, slow to evolve and change. And I think that maybe the balancing act for us is the one to sort of find this mix between experience in building teams, changing markets, the knowledge of the space and how that compounds. And those things together, I think, allow us to be better investors. So, so talk about, you talk about teams and partners, and, and you and Doug have been partners in the team with your other you know, broader team yeah. for a long time. How do you compliment each other? What is Doug really good at that sort of compliments you? How do you compliment him? You know, over the years, I think what we found is that we've ended up going um, in complementary ways to be able to, um, you know, I think the biggest area is in, in many respects, we don't co-run things. Things that I'm doing, often Doug may not be involved at an operating level and vice versa. But where we do get to sync up is really on strategic issues and really thinking through and, and having often when you're in the role of having to make a decision on things, they're not necessarily good counterparties that you can rely on for honest, clear eyed views of the situation. And because people who are working for you, you have to sort of motivate and bring people along and customers are obviously in their role. So I would say, I think we've played for each other, sort of an, uh, both an editorial function, a sounding board, an ability to have kind of clear-eyed commentary on what we, what we think is going right and wrong, and obviously support at various times when we've needed the support. So you guys have been operating outside the United States, you know, obviously inside the United States too, but outside the United States for 30 years. What has, you know, what, has changed what's most difficult when you're trying to establish businesses and run them um, outside the United States and where do you see the opportunities today yeah so what, what I mean we're in we're on in incredibly unusual times right now and uh, so it's a little bit harder obviously when you start to think about where the future can be when the world has been so profoundly disrupted by COVID-19 and with sort of a level of anti-globalism on the other hand, um, what we found over the years is that the patterns we see here, the, uh, the issues that drive and have made the U.S. economy so successful have really revolved around our, our 
first of all, obviously our system of capitalism, but also um, the, the whole ability for us to have built a system that encourages uh, an upskilling of the entire population. They're obviously, just as, just as your panelists were speaking, we have a long way to go, but we've also built a system which has the highest uh, 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 you know, uh, conferring ability in higher education and have, in fact, built a system here that has allowed us to skill up our economy in ways that others. And what we see around the world is, in many respects, that same thing happening. I would say 30 years ago, there wasn't the recognition. When people thought about investing in other countries, you were thinking of infrastructure, whether it was power companies, roads, whatever it is, hard industry. And it's really over the last 15 or 20 years that there's been a recognition that really is a knowledge economy around the world, and the investment has to be in your people. So what we've seen is that trend has continued everywhere. And you're seeing in all sorts of growth economies around the world, growth in K-12, in higher education, in technology, the same things we see here, but with variations that are necessitated by different societies, cultures, governments. But no matter where you walk today, whether you go to Vietnam, which is just on fire right now, um, you know, and which is sort of surprising because you have a, uh, a, uh, an emerging, essentially capitalistic society coming from roots, obviously, of communism and socialism that's embracing this idea. And it's bringing on board all the things we've seen here with a twist that would be Vietnamese. So we see the opportunity pretty much consistently around the world in some places growing faster, some places slower, but it, it is a worldwide opportunity on the education landscape. And you talked about anti-globalization uh, and, and obviously some of the things going on specifically with China. Do you think the opportunity in China is, is going to be as big for American companies going forward, or do you think there's going to be some, some um, issues as it relates to, to, to being able to develop business there. And you talk about, and then maybe just a, along with that, if you looked at China versus uh, Vietnam versus India, I call it the V-chips, Vietnam, China, India, Indonesia, the Philippines. How do you look at that? And if you just kind of stack ranked it in terms of where the future is going to go and where the opportunities are. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We've, had, we've been in China for, again, many, many years. The first business that we got involved with in China was actually Prometric which, as you mentioned, is a testing business. And I can remember, for us, opening China back in 93, 94. And um, when you sort of think about, and if you had sort of ranked China and said, is there going to be a great opportunity? Well, you had a full-on communist government. And I can tell you, uh, I, I won't take a lot of our time on it, but when we were, they were just opening, and at the time, what, what capitalism meant was you could open, you could sell your excess production of vegetables at a market. You could open a restaurant within your house and have two seats. And they started to allow for, quote, capitalism to occur. And as we were negotiating to set up Prometric in China, the government in the middle of it changed the law to say no foreign company can work on testing in the country. It has to go to the government. So guess what? They became our partner. So over the years, we've navigated China from a time when literally the government mandated you have to be in business with us as the government to today, which is fairly um, open as a society relative to those times. And I would say it's there are cyclical moments. I think we're obviously at a point where the exact predictability will be different, but we don't see at this stage actually, in fact, the demand characteristics in China 
the willingness to sort of invest in education couldn't be stronger in general terms. You clearly have to navigate the specific political construct. But just to give you sort of an interesting data point, for all of the relative, uh, call it, uh, reasons to be skeptical at this moment, that we could go through a long list, and you think about things like Chinese students coming to the United States with all of the friction that you have, our summer enrollments um, for a company that we're involved with uh, called Shorelight were up north of 20% from China. Wow. And, uh, and every reason in the world could exist to say um, there should be skepticism that people are going to show up, that COVID's rampant here, that the flights are, can't, you know, you could do. Now, we, we, we engaged people online, so you had to have modality. But at the end of the day, the point is, I think there is an inherent demand for what we do here to be transported around the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I'm going to combine a couple of concepts. One is coronavirus, you know, how the coronavirus effectively has accelerated the future to the present. And how do you think about the future as it relates to businesses that you're focused on, what some of the ones you already are involved with need to do, combined with the biggest changes you see taking place in the educational industry, and let's segment K-12, higher ed, corporate learning. Okay, well, that, <laughs> that you can go on. I think it's, a, it's like everything together, and we'll, we'll figure out the future. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the clock, and I want to make sure I've got a bunch of yeah, things. Yeah, no, no. So, I, I, you know, what I, I'd say is maybe to hit a few highlights on things. I think we're at a point in our economy in general where government has had greater has greater impact today on what's going on than certainly that I can recall during the time that I've been working. And we run a moment where we are at a reset point, either for societal reasons, economic, structural reasons. So when we look going forward, um, not to punt on it, but to some degree, when we see things, there are macro issues that drive characteristics. But there are also things that are going to change as a function of government policy because we do have a moment where things are changing, whether it's the government choosing winners and losers from a financial perspective through the Fed or Treasury, or whether it's on policy. When we look at sort of the needs of our society right now, and it's been most pronounced obviously right now with protests which have brought forth issues that we've confronted for generations but haven't solved, we could very well be looking at a time when you will see corresponding changes at government policy and priorities to be able to both create an, an impetus to change, but also to change the drivers of where you want to make investments. So we look at that and say, we're, we're, we're sort of eager to both participate in the dialogue on what should change, and on the other side, where it's going. There's some headwinds and tailwinds. So very, to be specific, I'll try to be brief on it. We, we're going to wait to see, for instance, in K-12, under normal circumstances, one would assume, for instance, there will be a pullback of investment in K-12 for curriculum and other things because of budgets. Well, it'll also depend where the next fiscal stimulus comes out and what happens with the government. But right now, I think most districts are in the process of reevaluating things on that side. We obviously have gone from full employment to massive unemployment. So we've reset the clock back to 2010 to some degree. And so we have to rethink about our, the purpose that we have in each part of the chain. We're no longer in the business of purely recruiting whatever talent is available and trying to retain, but the reality is we have to equip today students and uh, 
participants in our workforce with the skills of the futures, not to make it optionally better, but to simply participate in a right in a great way. So I think in every case, we're at a juncture where we've got to rethink each part of that equation. There are clearly things for the next 18 months where we'll see changes in supply and demand and whatever that are COVID related. But post that, I, I think it's going to be an extended period of digestion of a new economy and how we have to participate within that realm. So Chris, um, you have a very unique perspective um, and a lot going on and you're a strategist, you're an entrepreneur. We named you Secretary of Education. Uh, what would your priorities be? I mean, how would you, there's, there's, oh, there's education's opportunity as a great equalizer. There's, there's, you know, there's workforce issues. There's all these things. What are your, pri- what would your priorities be if, if, if um, we were so, so maybe, a, you know, so when I look at education, you know, we've done some things really well. Um, we've increased, for instance, graduation rate at high schools dramatically. We've, but we've done that not necessarily with improving all the outcomes for the kids or aligning high school to college. We have a college system that through the virtue of uh, massive loan programs have made it more accessible, but they haven't at the end of the day really changed. They've certainly have improved the opportunity for many people, but we've left behind large numbers. So today, and we haven't changed the underlying rules of the game in a way that's allowed innovation. So I'd focus on a few priorities. One is I would look at in the higher ed system really revising how we think about accreditation because those are effectively the ground rules for how institutions behave. Align funding and accreditation toward outcomes rather than through inputs. And today, much of our system is defined by what you put in, how much you invest, as opposed to what you get out. So we have to sort of release the sort of capacity to change in the system, measure the outcomes, and change, I think, both the rules as well as the funding systems to align against that. Um, I would actually increase Pell. I think Pell is one of those areas that is uh, a material impact and an opportunity and one that's an equalizer. It's of limited scale today and it works on income and it could be expanded to employment status. So that, for instance, we've got 20 million people out of work right now. One of the fastest ways to get people back into the retraining would be to make Pell eligible from an employment status standpoint instead of your income last year and expand that program so that more people have access to essentially a voucherized form of education on things. And I would take a really hard look at the alignment of of high school to really both work as well as to college. Because right now we have a system that is guided by a set of standards that are individually interesting, but collectively not fulsome in terms of really addressing the needs of a well-educated workforce. So, I mean, there's sort of a perpetual things that one could do, but there are a lot of areas of alignment and investment to make the system really, at the end of the day, measured by how well are students served. Uh, that has to be the, the ultimate measure on things. I've got a couple pages of questions left, but I just will only have time for two questions. So first question, um, Sintanas, and you talk about sort of the separation of sort of your activity and Doug's activity. I know Doug's the CEO of that business, but real quickly talk about what Santanas is doing, how that plays in kind of the future of learning and the partnership with Arizona State University. 
Yeah, so first we have a, it's, it's an early company. And so to that degree, there's still much to be, def, you know, much to be defined. And, and, and Doug will be a better spokesman than I, but nonetheless, I, I know the, the company. And I think where we see the opportunity is, is that many things that we see from an affiliation between a top tier and innovative institution like ASU and international universities around the world, coupled with really expertise that's been built over time through the team and our knowledge of running, as you mentioned at Laureate, 300 campuses and a million students in over 30 countries. If you combine all of those capabilities and say, how can you really bring first rate new practices around uh, building and managing institutions around the world between uh, you know, academic expertise coming from ASU coupled with kind of the operating expertise that we gained in building Laureate, that combination of things and partnering with international universities sort of is the centerpiece of what Centana is about. So last question, a lot of exciting things going on, a lot of exciting things that you guys are involved in. If you were to focus on one thing that has you most excited about the future um, and, and where you think could have the greatest impact, what would that be? You get one bullet. I apologize. Yeah. I, so, as a and let me ask you, you do you mean as a as a business opportunity or as sort of a policy opportunity on things? Either, either, either. Where where do you think can have the greatest impact? Is there is there a company or an area, or is there just a policy that you think could have the greatest impact in terms of giving everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future through access to quality education? Yeah, well, I, I think the policy one's a longer one, but I think there's a there are a bunch of things on the policy level that really equal the opportunity set. And I won't go through them, but I do think we really have to think about the restructuring of the alignment of incentives within our entire funding system so that and that's the biggest opportunity because it's going to take time to change the system. On the on sort of the business side of things, there's I would say there is a um, an alignment between K-12 higher education and eliminating sort of the break that takes place between those two and restructures sort of this idea that says, right now, as you can, as we th sort of think about, we have an island called K-12, we have an island called higher ed, we have this weird process of applications. We don't have an alignment between the two of them. And what we really need to do is to take the barriers down. And we think there are business opportunities that sort of take the barriers down in the system and restructure sort of the product. If you think about the product as a four-year credentialing experience and high school as, as a K-12 experience, and you really think of the outcomes, which have to do with education and being credentialed to work, we think that re-slicing and dicing, starting in high school, ending someplace within that K-16, K-20-plus range, is a, are there ways to restructure things so that you sort of break those boundaries? And we think that's there's some really interesting areas that one can kind of recraft opportunities. And I'm sorry, I know it'll be run over, but if it's just, just I, this is not something we're doing, but just as an example, find the brightest high school students, train them instead of having gone to college, um, provide really a combined work and academic experience that lets them earn a credential like a college degree, while for instance, they're working as a software engineer and you can get the best and brightest pulled out of the system, actually credentialed, making money, no debt, and you can restructure the way these systems work. So we see a lot of those types of opportunities. It sounds like we have the foundation for the Holland Sarek Scholarship Fund, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, this was absolutely terrific. 
thank you so well, thank much you. for being with us. Uh, everybody, stay safe, stay sane, and uh, we look forward to visiting again soon. Thank you. This Fireside Chat is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit, September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including American Student Assistance, Pearson, and Microsoft. Please visit asugsvsummit.com for more information.